Tonight on Arena Reviews this evening with Paul Oster's latest novels And new albums from Neil Young and The Cope As well as a tribute to Marianne Faithful All up for discussion Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. It's just one novel from Paul Oster that we're reviewing this evening, and a new novel from Paul Oster is always something of an occasion. The Brooklyn-based author is now seventy-six. He's given us some thirty books since he began to write, making his name with a memoir, *The Invention of Solitude* in nineteen eighty-two, and then the New York trilogy, a series of experimental detective no- novels in nineteen eighty-seven. Baumgartner is his latest work of fiction. The tale of a 70-year-old writer, philosophy professor at Princeton, who's about to retire, a man who's been widowed for a decade and is still grappling with grief. Oster was diagnosed with cancer as he was finishing this novel. He's had treatment this year. Sadly, he has said himself that this may be his last novel, Let Us Hope that he is totally wrong about that and that there's more writing to come. Dara Downs has been reading Baumgartner and he's he's with me in studio this evening. Um, Baumgartner is the title, uh, the title character here, Dara. Cy Baumgartner. We find him, is it the mo- very specific about when it is we find him. It's April, isn't it? Yes, April 2018, specifically April 2018. Why that month and what's he doing in that month and that year? Well, he's coming up as you've indicated, to the 10th anniversary of his wife's death and he's been kind of muddling through the last decade. A bit of a meltdown for six months after he lost his wife, Anna, mm. in, a, in a freak swimming accident in Cape Cod. Um, but he's, he's got on with it. He's been living alone and he's been working on his academic writing and teaching at Princeton University. And on this particular afternoon, he has a series of mishaps, uh, just minor things, but mm. that, that take on a major resonance for him. Uh, he scalds his hand, he falls down the basement stairs, and it doesn't take much to kind of trigger an awareness in him that that he that he, his life is discombobulated altogether. This is, in some ways, it's it's classic Paul Auster territory. The idea that you know these kind of chance things that happen. Uh, start to add up to something more significant. In fact, chances even there in, as you indicated, the death of the character's wife, Cy Baumgartner's wife, uh, 10 years previously, a freak accident, chance again playing a part there. Mm. Yeah, the precarity of human existence mm. is, a, is, 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 a, is a major theme here. And it, it it's probably not unrelated to the fact that, that Oster is Jewish. I mean, he's, there's a very strong sense of identity there and, and, and the, the, the story of how a seemingly stable world can just disappear mm. very quickly. Um, so, so Baumgartner, he's, it's that, he's kind of vulnerable to that con- these kind of sudden contingencies and he's trying to develop coping strategies. But he realises really his stuckness. He's, he realises, as, as Oster, as narrator puts it, that the innermost part of him has been dead for, for, for the last few years. So, so it's a classic existential crisis mm. kind of a setup that Oster is giving us. I mean, there's something and I'm guessing in the writing of Paul Oster. It's not, it's not a sentimental thing. But there is something um, very touching, very moving about the idea of, you know, the long, the long marriage and the long relationship that even 10 years subsequent to the death of his of his wife, that that is still a major component in his life. How, how is that relationship painted for us, given that she's gone 10 years? 
Oster does something wonderful early on. He, we, we're introduced to Baumgartner and he's beginning to fall apart. This is the, the widower mm. Baumgartner. And then he, he goes, he's going through his, his late wife's papers and he comes across a short story that she wrote about her first love. It's a bit like Joyce's The Dead. Right. Frankie Boyle, not to be confused with the Scottish comedian, I hasten to add. Um, and the extraordinary thing, it sparkles. He gives us, Oster gives us the full text of Anna's original short story and it's very curious you get to the end of that and she has such a strong voice that you feel grief for the loss of her voice when we go back to our main narration and we're just <laughs> stuck with poor old Baumgartner. So in fact you 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 are more taken in some ways as a reader by the the, the story within the story the short story uh, of the wife Anna and interestingly this started life, I believe, for Paul Oster. It started as a short story yeah. and grew from there. Do we know? Was it was it that short story that it started from? Or, I don't or? know. Anna Bloom, she <clears throat> she appears in an earlier work in The Country of Last Things. Right. Um, I, I'm not sure what's going on here, I, but I, 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 I've been kind of trying to do a bit of an archaeological dig just speculatively with the text. I think the main story of Baumgartner is, 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 is a recent mm. thing. And and I, I think Oster kind of casts around. He delves into his own archive for for miscellaneous papers. I'll use pieces. her story here. Is type of use is the sense you have? Is it? Yeah, but but and, and that voice. It's it just the text just comes alive. And it's and it's we're when we come back to poor old Baumgartner on his own, we we feel something of his grief for for that lost presence, and we also get a sense from the descriptions of their relationship over the years. Mm. They were married for several decades. We we get a strong sense of how much more alive Baumgartner was when he was with her. They were a great double act. So he has this, he, he himself calls it a, a phantom limb syndrome. He, he, he just, he doesn't feel like a complete person anymore. And he's been blocking that realisation for the last decade. There's something terribly tragic about that, and and obviously the difficulty is if 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 the the sparkle in the novel is the dead character uh, and her past, and even Baumgartner himself in that in that period in the past, is the guy in the present a bit of a bore? Uh, and 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 what's the ch- well? That is the challenge, isn't it, for for Paul Auster? He's the one he wants us to read about in the present moment. Yeah, and, and listen, I can work with bores, literary bores, some of the greatest characters. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's, it's for me, what's, what I kind of wished Oster had done, I wish he'd gone deeper into the emptiness and the, and the boringness, actually, of, yeah. of this Baumgartner. I mean, Baumgartner, at the moment we first meet him in this April of 2018, he's working on a, on a book on Kierkegaard. Now, Kierkegaard is the godfather of emptiness, of boredom, of mm. existential dread. But Baumgartner might just as well be working on his stamp collection here. There's the, the things that he's writing about, they're not reflected in him in any way. Now, there may be a satire of that certain detached academic mm. engagement with, with great thoughts and great literature, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and I don't I'm think sure there's enough depth here in the Baumgartner character. Yeah, and, and I suppose you, he, Paul Oster didn't choose Kierkegaard by accident. He knew exactly what he was doing when he, when he chose that particular philosopher to, to highlight uh, within the, the Baumgartner story. When did Baumgartner have the the dream about the telephone call. That's, uh, it's, I think, it's, isn't it in June? Right, so we're, we're in April. So June of 
of, of 2018. Of 2018, yeah. So he has this thing. And I thought I was in a Stephen King story for, mm. for a few pages. He, he, he basically wakes up. We're not told it's a dream. He goes downstairs to Anna's workroom because she was a, a, tra- a translator and a poet and a poet. And she had this red telephone, which has been disconnected since her death. Mm. The telephone rings. He he answers it, and it's it's Anna. it's Anna. Uh, she's a disembodied consciousness in in a version of the hereafter. It's a rather bleak, nihilistic version of the hereafter. And she tells him that the only thing keeping my disembodied consciousness alive is the fact that you are still thinking of me. You still remember me. So it's, uh, it's yeah, there's, <laughs> there is that's fairly bleak stuff, all yeah. right. But it, nevertheless, well, is a memory a real thing or is a memory a well? That's a, what Baumgartner yeah. has, and he said there may be a little bit of Kierkegaard in here. He says, look, objectively, this was just a dream. This is afterwards, of course, but mm. but there was a subjective emotional truth here that I need to honour. That uh, I'm I'm feeling the loss of this phantom limb, and 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 I need to to show Anna the reverence of, of acts of remembrance. And I also need to get on with my bloody life. Yeah, and the way you're describing it there, I mean, certainly Paul Oster is well capable of, of writing bleakness and darkness and emptiness. There's no question about that. But you, you feel, uh, do you feel he, he hasn't gone deep enough, as I think was the phrase you used? I think, if I'm being honest, the, the novel loses its way a bit and he... he by the end of about chapter three. That soon? Yeah, well, there's only five chapters, but okay. it's about halfway through the, <laughs> right, through the okay. novel. Um, it, feels, it feels at times as though Oster is he's, he's throwing lots of different stuff at, mm. at the wall, hoping some of it will stick. And I, I just wondered, had he himself become a little bored with, with Baumgartner? Now, I, as I say this, I can hear the counter-argument, which is that Baumgartner's facing up to his grief is facing up to his past, which means he, he has to think beyond himself. He has to think of the past, all the connections, all the backstories in the family and so forth, mm. so that the novel has to disperse into a kind of wandering around the memory palace. I'm not sure, though. I, I think the novel feels, it feels padded out to me, uh, which is strange for a 200-page novel. Yeah, because again, I was just looking at it when you, when you said chapter three, I thought, oh, well, that, that's early on. But in a five-chapter novel, chapter three isn't that. It's halfway through it. And it's only 200 pages. I mean, Oster's well known for long books. Yeah, well, he's, he's mixed it up. But, mm. but this, yeah, I mean, it, it's, I mean, as you mentioned at the, at the top, John, I mean, this, the, the, the context in which this book was written, it, it, it feels positively indecent, honestly, to be offering a kind of a, mm. a dispassionate critique. Well, I'm sure he'd be the very man to say to you, to treat the writing as for what it is. Don't don't think about Paul Oster for the person. Yeah, I'd like to think so. And there is a, the moment I, I, I singled out there toward the end of chapter three, there's this kind of Kafkaesque parable, very short, that Baumgartner writes. He's doing kind of writing therapy. Mm. You know, and it's, it's called Life Sentence. It's about a man who's condemned to having to write sentences for, for the rest of his life and he's in a kind of solitary confinement. He's free to leave any time he goes. I just felt there was a kind of gently valedictory energy about that and I think Oster himself was was thinking about his own mortality for the most obvious reasons. Yeah. And, he's, and, and I felt, and this for me I suppose is the, 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 the strange thing. I read this novel, I got to the end, I put it down kind of saying bah humbug this is this is this is thin stuff but something drew me back to it for a second read and it was on the second reading that that was clarified for me why I was drawn back it's not the core Baumgartner stuff it's it's these miscellaneous stray bits and pieces that come in and out uh, of the text there's there's a great richness in them 
Um, and it's, I'm not sure what's going on, to be quite I'll have to do a third reading come back yeah. to you. <laughs> um, just finally, there is a, you, you clearly enjoyed the character of Anna and you'd, oh. you'd, you'd read a book about Anna Bloom, it would seem to be. There's another potential relationship in the book with a friend of hers. Mm. Now, um, Cy Baumgartner is 70 and the friend is 56. So 54, the, yeah. Or yeah, 54, yeah, so yeah. I beg your pardon. So 16 years, 16 years between them. Uh, was that considered part of the problem from, from her side? Uh, he thinks so. He wonders about this. Um, she's she. She was she, a pal of Anna's. She was a pal of Anna's, and he proposes to her. She turns him down. She she then a few months later moves to California to accept a chair. Moves from New Jersey to California to accept a chair in film study. So there's you know I, I, there, there are other a, things going there's, on. There's an element of a kind of a displaced campus novel here yeah. uh, somewhere. But Judith Foyer, her name is Fire. Anna's second name is Blume, the German for flower. His name is Baumgartner, the German for tree gardener. There's some pretty obvious symbolism going on right. here, even with the names. And read, read, read number three, you think might reveal more. In January. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you will go back to it. Yeah, I want to go back to the uh, the Book of Illusions, actually, which is, has a similar starting to this. And just, just check it out again in the light of this. All right. It's, um, it's a never-ending journey. Yeah, and it's, it's not, it's not a, a, a shouting, a ringing endorsement that I'm hearing from you. I wish era. it was. I really wish. I wanted to really love this. And I want it to be special, but it, it just didn't quite do it for didn't me. Didn't quite do it for you. That's uh, Dara Dunn speaking to us about Baumgartner by Paul Oster, which is published by Faber. In recent times, all of our national institutions have been engaged in looking back with the decade of centenaries. Now a new exhibition, IMA, at IMA, the Irish Museum of Modern Art, shows how we, the Irish, were not alone in fighting for and gaining independence from a colonial power. Self-determination, a global perspective, has brought artwork together from galleries all over Europe to show how various nations have broken free of colonial rule and went about and gone about creating a new state and an aesthetic to go with that newfound independence. Curator uh, Sean Cassan is with me in studio this evening to talk us through some of the ideas here. And this actually started, Sean, I think, as as part of the decade of centenaries, where obviously we've been looking back at the, the origins of the new Irish state. But you're looking at it in the context of what was happening in Europe and indeed worldwide. That's That's the kind of the broad picture that you're looking for here. Yeah, so the intention with the project was to stop telling the Irish story in the Irish context, but to really uh, cast the net far wider, take a bird's eye view of the political situation from 1918 onwards, from the end of the war, Mm. and try and see where we could see the Irish story in comparison to countries as diverse as Finland, the Baltics, former Austria-Hungary, the former Ottoman Empire and even Egypt. Um, and in, in making those comparisons, we found we found very, very rich uh, seams of cultural identity that could be found. And in fact, I suppose the idea of self-determination, that even that term is very much of that uh, 19-teens, in an American term, really, isn't it? It is. It was, it was the President Woodrow Wilson who first came up with it. And it was this the right of uh, small nations to self-determine was the mm. idea. But what was clear at the time of the Treaty of Versailles and the, the peace, the peace conferences, was that it was um, it was the losers who were entitled to uh, the territories of the losers were 
were entitled to self-determination, not the British, not the French colonies effectively. So this is partly why some of these states emerge in 1918, but we find that Ireland continues this war of independence right through to 2223, uh, through guerrilla warfare mm. and so on, uh, because it wasn't as, as, as neat as we have found in some other states. Right. And th- we, we were saying, I was chatting to you just before we came to air, and this is a very big exhibition. So we, we're kind of going to dip at parts of it and try to get give a sense of some of the ideas that are there and how they're manifested in the art that is there. Let's um, start to uh, the old guard and start with the old guard rather. Um, and the Ireland's case, Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria. So. One of the things that we observed was uh, because all of these countries were 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 had ha, were imperial colonies mm. uh, of sorts. Um, one of the questions was, well, what did these states do with the old monuments? What did you do with the old figurehead, and what did you replace it with? So the very first room in the exhibition is situated exactly in the Royal Hospital, Kilmainham, because, of course, the IMA is in this former colonial building, this former military installation. Um, And we discovered that in 1908, um, a Dublin got together with a subscription to make a massive monument to Queen Victoria. It was uh, placed outside uh, uh, Leinster House and it remained there until the 1950s, despite that, the f- that long, <laughs> that long, despite the fact that it was Dáil Éireann. So there had been 30 years of protests to remove it. It was finally dismantled and it was brought to the courtyard of Imma or, or the Royal Hospital, yeah. rather. And bits of it are still to be found around the formal gardens. Because at that time, um, Emma wasn't wasn't in the, well, on the grounds course, of the Royal Hospital. Of course, yet. not until the 1990s. Yeah. But um, so what happened was Ireland very graciously gifted the bronze to Sydney, Australia. Um, other places. Is there uh, any sense of irony in your use of the word "very graciously"? <laughs> very, gifted it? it was very gracious. But uh, but other places like UCC uh, yeah. famously dug a big hole and buried their Queen Victoria in the grounds, and she's still there. Equally graciously. I'm Equally guessing. gracious. But um, so that's one proposal was was to dismantle. But of course, then Nelson's column was blown up mm-hmm. um, violently, and so our quest. We then posed the question: Well, what do you replace it with? And we have a very playful installation, which I think you're tweeting, um, which shows the contemporary Irish artist Neve McCann and she has this big bronze nose (laughs) of Michael Collins um, which has been plonked directly on Victoria's head. So it's a very, it's a playful um, uh, answering of this question Um, but also we find this through the exhibition which is that the the, the methods of, of, of replication sometimes are quite brutal. But the, I suppose the idea of plunking something of the new state on top of the old colonial power, there is something um, quite humorous and almost anarchic in that very act itself. When I think of, you know, where Ireland in, in that period, the, the cultural revival ahead of the revolution and ahead of the Easter Rising, ahead of all of that, there was this constant harking back to the the idyllic Celtic period when all was great in this country. We had wonderful culture, we had wonderful language, we had wonderful music, and all of it was homegrown. And are, are we alone in doing that type of thing? Well, you're absolutely right that this tendency towards looking into a deep and glorious past uh, was something that we found in many other countries. Um, for example, in Egypt, um, we discovered an artist called Mahmoud Mukhtar, um, who uh, in the late 20s, early 30s, made this sculpture called Egypt Awakening or e- uh, the, the Egypt's Renaissance. And what mm. it shows is a reinterpretation of the Sphinx, 
who's accompanied by a partially unveiled woman. And this, this partial unveiling becomes a symbol of modernity and modernization in the new Egyptian state. But of course, this combination with the Sphinx is this looking back to a 4,000 year history um, that they were extremely proud of. Um, and what, what we're trying to do with the project is look at those comparisons where we see other countries looking back. And then in the next re- room, we contrast it. Um, with, for example, what happened in Turkey, where under the first uh, president of the Republic, Kemal Ataturk, he took on a tabula rasa, just start from a blank canvas. So he moved the capital away from now what mm. is now Istanbul to a small town in the centre of the country, Ankara, and he hired German engineers to design a brand new capital in the most avant-garde, international modernist style. And this uh, was it was very surprising to find out that things like the cultural revival, which we saw here, uh, were not foregone conclusions, that there yeah. are other ways of doing. And even, doing on, it. even at a simple level, if you think of the cultural revival and the, you know, the harking back to the old Irish alphabet and the old Irish script and how that was used, that was not the case in Turkey. It was get rid of any ancient, anything that was ancient at all. So what Ataturk did, it was incredibly surprising. He, he swept away all of the, uh, all of the, we'll call them indigenous languages. Mm. So uh, Turkish um, was written in Ottoman Arabic, got rid of that, got rid of Armenian, Greek and so on, uh, and introduced the Roman script uh, for, for modern Turkish, thereby rendering the whole population illiterate overnight. Which is kind of, in some ways, is a, a kind of often a colonial act rather than a post-colonial act. Well, it, it, it was a type of colonial act mm. because in doing so, what he was also doing was 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 removing the Armenian, the Greek, uh, the Ottoman Arabic and so on. So there was a form of erasure. There was a form of removing these indigenous mm. languages, which is something that the contemporary artists in this exhibition speak to. Um, but also, I mean, it is a source of great pride to, to the Turkish state because there are statistics around literacy when he when he came to power being 22%. Uh, by the time the Second World War came, it was up in 80%. And it was partly to do with the simplification of the language, the standardisation. But of course, this is a contested history. Yeah, it would it would be that. And I'm sure even the Armenian side of that story is, is contested by some. Um, different approaches then. You're touching on it there, how there was the tabula rasa. Another aspect was, I'm thinking of somebody like Sean Keating and the type of paintings that he would give us, which very much go to, you know, salt of the earth, rural Irish communities and the nature of their activity. Um, Talk about what he does, first of all, Sean Keating, or what he did and how that might contrast with other uh, other countries. So we there's uh, Sean Keating is seen a number of times in the exhibition. Um, There's a case study from the building of the Ardna Crusher power plant. Uh, which remains to this day the largest infrastructural project ever undertaken by the Irish state when defined by GDP. G- GDP. Mm. And uh, what Keating did was over a two year period was he uh, observed the construction of the dam, but also the lives of the people there. And uh, the, the, the conditions that they lived in were truly, truly brutal. Um, the workers, um, the uh, engineers were brought in from Germany from Siemens, uh, Germany, of course, because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. And um, 
one of the things that's very beautiful is there's a, a small pencil portrait by, by Keating of a man called McDonough. And he was from Connemara and he was an Irish speaker. And one of the things that Keating recorded was that there, were, there was a distinct class difference, of course, between the German engineers, but also the Irish workers who spoke English and the Irish workers who spoke Irish who were an underclass and were bullied by the other workers. And Keating, having spent so long in Connemara, had a real affinity to the Irish speakers. But I suppose uh, while that is one part of the story, the other is that his work was somewhat reactionary. In the 1920s, Cubism has already happened. Uh, Futurism has already happened. Orphism, all of these isms have already happened. And he holds firmly to his style of academic figuration, of making a, a real and true rendering of the body, for example. And in the exhibition, we've contrasted this with um, the women artists, particularly Mani Jellett and Evie Hone, Mary Swansea, mm. who are taking a completely different path towards pure abstraction. You also have a, 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 a room in the exhibition. It's the very centre of the exhibition, a section called Builders. And this is where you're looking at, I suppose, the architectural expression of a, of a, new, of a new state. With an exhibition like this, where there are so many historical timelines overlapping and, mm. s- uh, and it's so confusing, we needed to give a pause, an aesthetic pause, an unexplained moment in the exhibition where you, it, it was enough to look. And so the subject that we took was that uh, in each of these states, the, 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 the country itself had to be built from the ground up and artists aestheticised this labour. Um, so there are scenes of blacksmiths, of loggers, of trees being felled, of roads being built, all of these heavy, heavy activities. Um, and the point that we're showing is that uh, each of these activities has been translated in an avant-garde style. So, for example, uh, many of these artists, including the Irish artists, had gone to Paris because that's where you learned to be modern. And so we can see the influence of great masters like André Lotte in Paris, who's teaching mm. a form of Cubism. Uh, we see it having been taught in Ireland, in Estonia, in Serbia and further afield. We might be briefly to finish up then, look at uh, some of the contemporary artists that are involved, because it's, it's not all about looking back. You have contemporary, I suppose. Uh, are they responses to the, uh, the earlier works or what? how would you describe it? It's a mix. Um, some of the artists were working on uh, projects that we felt spoke to the theme independently and we invited them to, to bring those works. Um, other artists like the Array Collective from, from Belfast. The, the, the former Turner Prize they winners. They recently won the Turner Prize. They responded directly to the list of works and to the, uh, if you like, the research questions that we're proposing in the exhibition. And they have come up with some very, very playful um, responses. So, for example, in this first room where we, where we talked about Queen Victoria and the monument, and the destruction of the monument, there is a, 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 a yellow hand made from Lego um, and it's called the slapper. And it, resp- it, it, it is a quotation of Bernadette Devlin McAlisky slapping the Home Secretary after Bloody Sunday. Um, that's just one of the examples. Mm. Um, as, the, as the viewer will come uh, into the, uh, f- the first room of the exhibition itself, and there's a, a, a huge installation of gold balloons, very rep- maybe reminiscent of Andy Warhol, which is on in the Hulane at the moment. Yeah. But it's by <coughs> Banu Senatoglu, who is a, a contemporary um, Turkish 
um, artist and it's called Right? Um, and it is the uh, the articles of the rights of man, which were, uh, were published in the early 20th century, um, each reduced to its letter. The letter is then blown up as a gold uh, balloon, if you can imagine, in this big bouquet. But gradually, over the uh, five to six months of the exhibition, they're going to deflate and they're going to lose their power and they're wow. going to sag on the ground. Because, of course, what we've witnessed is since the um, this idealism of the uh, er early part of the century, we can now see through dictatorships and authoritarian rule that these these rights and these laws are not being respected. I have to say, it, it, they're a fascinating set of ideas there and it sounds like a, a really interesting exhibition and one should go, I suppose, look at the balloons now and go back in a few come, months' time and look at them again. Come and see them before they're sagging <laughs> on the ground. <laughs> Absolutely. Sean Kassan, thanks so much for coming into us this evening and describing that to us, Sean. And self-determination, a global perspective, runs at the Irish Museum of Modern Art through until April 2024 when the balloons will be totally deflated. Friday night, which means it's time for album reviews. Three new releases to discuss this evening. Neil Young and his 45th studio album entitled Before and After. There's also a tribute album honouring Marianne Faithful. It's simply called The Marianne Faithful Tribute, created by a group of musician fans that include Tanya Donnelly and Iggy Pop and who call themselves The Faithful. And finally, Dublin-Berlin-based electronic duo The Cope have released Dancer, uh, an album which was conceived amidst the unique challenges posed by the 2021 one lockdowns. Nadine Regan, Dave Hanratty have been listening to all three albums that are with me in studio this evening. We'll start with Neil Young and his latest album Before and After. And why don't we just start with a song? This is Birds. It's a track called Birds from Neil Young's 45th studio album, Before and After. Um, 45 albums is impressive at any point along the way. 78-year-old Neil Young giving us uh, Before and After. You've got a very happy face, a happy smile on your face about this one, Nadine. Well, uh, we were chatting a little while the song we was were. playing <laughs> and your opinion slightly differs from mine on this. Look, it is obvious, we've all known for years, that to some extent, Neil Young's vocal instrument is an acquired taste. It's not for everyone. But it wasn't always, though, was it? I mean, come on, was it, it was. Yeah, okay, go on. I mean, okay, it used to be, it has changed over yeah. the years, there's no doubt about that. But I would have always thought, like, I remember when I was like 16, 17, and I was first introduced to Neil Young, and I was like, this man sounds like a bag of cats. <laughs> <laughs> Could anyone possibly like him? And then as the years go on, something happens, and you start to really understand where he's coming from, and the sheer emotion. I, I just connect, I connected with this record because I thought it was very, very beautiful, very tender. I thought there, that I was connected very quickly into the tracks. And of course, they are songs. He's revisiting his back catalogue. He's cherry picking yeah. from different albums. He's picking mostly lesser known tracks and then, you know, covering himself, essentially using mainly just 
guitar, vocals, mm. some spare instrumentation, a bit of organ and that kind of thing, harmonica. And for me, I found it very beautiful. Maybe it was the mood I was in. Yeah, well, maybe it was the mood I was in. <laughs> but but I, you have to acknowledge, there's no question about this, for, for somebody to go back to the back catalogue as he has done here and as Nadine says, for the most part, go to the lesser known tracks and say, do you know what? I love this little song and no matter what any of you thought about it and it not being maybe the hit that I wanted it to be at the time, I'm going to revisit it and, and have a look at it and, and share it with you again now. Yeah, he's perfectly entitled. You know, like he's 78 years of age. It's a king surveying his kingdom. This is the mm. 45th studio album. There's an exceptionally prolific musician, of course. And like the, the vocal debate is interesting because I thought his vocals held up quite strongly on this one, more than I expected going in mm. because of that acquired taste that you mentioned. And I think that always has been in play. You think of After the Gold Rush, one of the greatest albums of all time, but the vocals aren't for everybody. You know, even there, they're not for everybody. Mm. And there's a vulnerability here, which I quite like. And yeah, like, I mean, you might think, oh, great, he's sitting down for, you know, one kind of constant stream of consciousness, which is the way that this, this has been put together. It's meant to be like a music montage with no beginnings or endings. And I'm like, can't wait to hear all the classics. And you're not getting that. <laughs> no. You're only getting these kind of, you know, rarities, B-sides or lesser loved creations. And again, that's entirely up to him. And he has shaped it in such a way where he's basically been like, here I am with a guitar and very few extra additional elements. And you're just going to sit there and like it. I, and, and Nadine, I mean, that the fact that, as, as Dave says, it is the 13 songs run running into the other. Yeah. There's, there is an intimacy in that, in that it's almost as if you're sitting in the room with him and he's just going from song to song. He's not stopping for, for a chat and an introduction of yeah. the song in between. And curiously, I found myself <coughs> thinking of Taylor Swift because, you know, if Taylor wants to go back and re-record all her records and make money again in a different way on it, she's perfectly entitled to and so is Neil Young. And one of the things I really like about his attitude towards his career is he's so bloody minded you know yeah, if he doesn't want to be yeah. on Spotify he gets off Spotify if he doesn't agree <laughs> with somebody he tells them if he you know whatever he wants to do he goes like when he wrote his autobiography which was what published about 10-12 years ago I mean he refused to allow a ghostwriter anywhere near it and it I mean I read it it mm. went on and <laughs> on and he just did it his way and there's something very uh, sometimes uh, difficult about that but also very admirable about yeah, that and, and there's no doubt that I suppose you're Neil Young you can do that um, <laughs> your 45th studio album you can kind of say what you want he does have a very beautiful lyric however in this song Don't forget love Don't forget love Don't forget love When you got no There we go and the discussion continues in the studio as we're listening to that um Dave, I, I said if that was anybody else, I would, well, I'd have walked out of the gig. But with Neil Young, I do stay and, and the lyric still holds me and it's the kind of the open rawness, the, the bravery to just say, don't forget love as a lyric. I mean, obviously, it's a, it's a song that's been around for a while. It's not a new song. Um, does the album work for you uh, in that respect? Well, the first thing I want to say is I'm delighted that you're calling yourself out there for the benefit of the listener for these off-panel discussions we've been having. <laughs> and who knew Neil Young was so divisive in 2023? Um, it works because it's Neil Young, as you're kind of hinting at there. Yeah. I think, sure, you could say, like, you know, it's so unvarnished to the point of, okay, maybe some assistance could be 
required here, but that would defeat the purpose of this. Oh, yeah, and that I would make it that. kind of yeah. modern and glossy and not real. And it is meant to be just a guy with a heart, his heart in his sleeve. And, you know, we've talked about the defiance of him and he is a rebellious spirit. And this, you know, the way that he's composed this is one kind of big, you know, almost quote unquote streaming album yeah. is his kind of, I think, raising, you know, two fingers to yeah, the streaming Yeah, he's world. also saying you can't, you can't just listen to one track. Yeah, and like it is hard. It's hard to kind of turn off the world these days in that regard. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the sentiment of this is beautiful. It is a great way to end the album. It is a sentiment we can all cling to right now, even if it does sound hackneyed and saccharine. You're asking if it works over the course of the record. It does, but only if you work to tune into it. And I do think as well, there is the natural inevitability that this is more for the purists than the casuals. But I'm glad to hear Neil Young still doing it his way in Stars. 2023. Three and a half. I mean, like, you know, fair play to him, essentially, is my yeah. kind of general all summation. Right. Nadine? I connected to it. I hear you on the vocals, but I connected to it four stars. All right, four stars from you. I was under a lot of pressure today, so I'm going to go back and listen <laughs> and try to have more open ears, uh, possibly this evening, in a little bit of a, more of a quiet atmosphere and give Neil Young his due. He deserves at least a second or third listen, to be fair to the man, before and after the title of the Neil Young album that we've been talking about. Let's move on then to an album from a group called The Faithful. <laughs> um, who are the fans of Marianne Faithful? Uh, just give me a, a thumb a thumbprint or the thumb picture of a few of the fans here, uh, Dave Hanratty, who are doing this for a very good reason, it has to be said. Yeah, uh, Shirley Manson, Peaches, Tanya Donnelly, Iggy Pop, or just Jonas Policewoman, the yeah. names go on. Uh, this is a strange one because it's a tribute record to a living legend. Uh, Marianne Faithful was unfortunately struck down with a hellacious bout of COVID a few years ago, which genuinely almost took her life. And she has been recovering from that ever since. Uh, it has been said that she may never sing again, which is a very, very sad state of affairs. And she's spoken very openly about this near-death experience and how traumatic it yeah. was. But you have people coming together now to pay tribute, to raise money for her, and also, crucially, to keep her music out there and to pass it on to a new generation. All right, let's have a listen to what Joan, as policewoman, does with broken English. I could have got through any time there we go, the opening of Broken English from Jonas Policewoman and that from an album called The Marianne Faithful Tribute from a group of friends, essentially, who are very worthily doing what they're doing in terms of looking after Marianne Faithful. And I don't, th- I don't think anybody, Nadine, would begrudge her that kind of care being given to her. Yeah. But it, every, t- every song I listen to, I want to go back and hear the original. Yeah, it's, uh, what is it, 19 tracks? Mm. Uh, and it feels long. It's a bit of a mixed bag it, most of the songs function as kind of curios rather than uh, incredibly compelling mm. listens in their own right the better ones um, as, as we just heard they're, like they send you kind of back to the original in that like you're like this is good but maybe I'd prefer to listen to the original yeah. and not in a kind of compare and contrast way more just let's just listen to the original and it, this is a really, really nice idea. And as I was saying, it's very commendable. Um, but ultimately, it's actually, it's kind of difficult because most of these songs aren't songs that were written by Marianne Faithful. Yeah. So you're going to tracks that she herself covered from other artists. So in a way, the the sense of a unification of vision isn't quite yes, there isn't either. There. So it's it's a tricky enough endeavour, mm. I would say. Yeah, uh, uh, one I, I thought to myself at one point, maybe give us a few less songs and let's have Marianne Faith, you know, one side of the album, if you like, with her and the other side of the album with the friends all yeah. pitching in and doing versions of her 
yeah, Dave. Yeah, it's an extremely tricky project to review critically because of what it means and what yeah. it stands for and why it exists. And you know, I think a lot of credit has to go to Tanya Pearson, who heads the Women of Rock Oral History Project and has actually written a book on Marian Faith before where she wanted to change the narrative. Tanya Pearson has talked about how she got sick of seeing Marianne Faithful painted as this, you know, kind of hellraiser, and and that was it. You know, it's like mm-hmm. there was actually a lot more to this woman and what she has inspired over the years. And in fact, the original, the genesis of this project was she wants to put on a gig, she wants to put on a tribute concert, and kind of maybe involve Marianne to some degree there, yeah. if, if possible, health permitting. But that was also taking place during COVID when lockdowns were still happening, and so it, it, it became yeah. this. This has been in the works for a couple of years. I think you know, I, I would agree. I mean, it, it is it is the definition of a mixed bag, and there is some good stuff here. Cap Power is really good. And some of them very like Marianne's own version, some of them miles away from her own version. It's genre smashing into each other. And I think of the Shirley Manson and Peaches track, uh, which is like an industrial clang of things. And it's very clearly a callback to their own inspirations as well. So the fact that it exists is the admirable nature of it. I I think it's very much for completists only. And also it's it's also going to raise money for Marianne Faith, which is important as well. And that's the point. That is the point here. Let's uh, listen to a little bit of Cat Power, Niggy Pop, who took on Working Class Hero. Uh, a bit of language involved in this one. As you, as you were saying, as you were listening to that, Dave, no doubt who Iggy Pop is channeling there. Yeah, Leonard Cohen, all the way. Yeah, yeah, and very well. Yeah, yeah. So does a good he, job on it. Does he mean it? I don't know. Mm. So we, we all said as we were listening there, this would have been a great gig. Does it work as an album, Dave? Uh, just about. Uh, it's held together by sellotape, but it is for a good cause. And for that reason, it's three out of five for me. And Nadine? Honestly, two and a half. Uh, some really you know, credible, interesting artists on this record, but maybe not one that I'd necessarily return to, although I do think the effort is laudable. All right, OK. Let us move on to our final album then this evening, Dancer from The Cope. Let's listen to a track called Find Another Way. certainly the first time tonight that we would have been getting up on the floor and doing a bit of bopping if there were, if we were in such a mood to do so. Uh, just tell us briefly uh, Nadine, who are we talking about when we talk about The Cope? Yeah, it's uh, the founding members are the audiovisual artists David Anthony Curley, formerly of Otherkin and Joe Furlong. They met at a karaoke party in 2019 <laughs> and they found themselves trading ideas and a few years later here we are and you can probably hear the reference points there. Hot Chip is definitely a big yeah. one. I also felt like I heard, you know, 
elements of you know the the kind of very absorbing introspective electronica of somebody like John Hopkins. Also on a couple of the tracks, Peaches is a bit of a reference point. There's a bit of spiky electro pop in there, and possibly even New Order and Depeche Mode. So it's a, it's a it's actually very like a, for me at least a very good set of reference yeah. points because I like all those artists. And it's a debut album, yeah. And it's a debut album, yeah. but it sounds very confident. Yeah, actually. it has a lot of confidence within it. Um, and, and are we getting a, a good balance between the a dance album that is get up on the floor and dance and a bit of little, little bit of introspection? Does that balance struck for you, Dave? The balance is off. I think. I think those ideas are there definitely. And like all the sound likes that I mentioned there, I'm nodding my head along. Um, the one that stood out mm. for me the most was there's a French act called The Blaze, who are a wonderful dance electronica outfit, who came along in the last kind of seven years or so and are audiovisual experts, and that's kind of what the Cope I think are tapping into. But where The Blaze have transcendence in spades, I didn't quite get that here. I think this is extremely polished stuff, and it arrives on a wave of yeah. hype. They're very much it's a calling card. It's like come see us live. I, I think it right. will work in the live setting. And it is the debut album, and I'm cutting it short tonight but with good reason. Stars from you, Dave? Three out of five, tons of potential, but I didn't love Did it. You? Three out of five, I really liked it. Yeah, okay. Uh, that is Dancer from The Cope. Uh, we also spoke about the Marianne Faithful tribute from The Faithful and Before and After from Neil Young. I will tell you that tonight, um, the researcher for the programme was Paula Shields. The broadcast coordinator was Ollie Hamilton. Mark McGrath was on sound and the programme was produced by Reg Luby. But of course, today, the funeral service celebrating the life of Shane McGowan was held in St Mary's of the Rosary Church in Nina County Tipperary among the many heartfelt musical tributes throughout the service was a version of The Pogues' A Rainy Night in Soho, performed by Nick Cave and accompanied by Colin McAnumara on fiddle. We will leave you with that this evening. Our yes, Jay, Goroa Anam. I've been loving you a long time 